The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information on Shiloh Presbyterian Church, please visit our website at shilohopc.org. All right, so um, Matthew called me yesterday morning and said I should probably plan to teach Sunday school because he probably wouldn't be here today, and he was right. Um, So I have a lesson that's going to go a little bit off topic, um, sort of off topic. But before we do that, we haven't had a lot of time for questions during this class. We're trying to cover so much material. Does anyone have any outstanding questions that they would like to ask? Was there a seminary before Princeton is the question, yeah. There was not a... um, a seminary in the main line in the PCUSA before Princeton. There was a, the first seminary, uh, Presbyterian seminary was the Associate Synod Presbytery in the late 1700s, I think, in Western Pennsylvania. And then there's a uh, ARP seminary that started in New York City, I think in 1805, which we're going to talk a little bit about today. Um, but Princeton was the first um, in the, the what's now the PCUSA. And then I think maybe after that would have been Union Seminary in Virginia, perhaps. That was starting around the same time. At least the co- Hampton Sydney College started at the same time. <coughs> Any other questions before we move on? Yes, Gallery. Yeah. <laughs> did did, jo- did, did, did Presbyterians create Joseph Smith? I think um, Joseph Smith's mother might have been Presbyterian, um, but I, I don't think he was particularly religious before. I mean, he was very young when he you know, supposedly found these golden tablets in the woods, uh, and I don't th- know that he had been committed to a church prior to that. Um, and the, the Second Great Awakening is a lot bigger than Presbyterianism, even though like, Charles Finney's a big figure and he's Presbyterian, but there's a lot of other things happening. And a ton of denominations come out of the 1800s. I mean, a lot of different movements. When he found the 13, when he found the Golden Tablets? Yeah. So he was young. I'm not, I'm not sure that's exactly, but... So I don't, I don't think there is a clear Presbyterian connection there, um, Dave, but there, it's just a very weird era. The, the, eight, the 1800s are a very weird era for religion in America. I mean, later you'll get the Jehovah's Witnesses, you get the Christian scientists come out of that era, um, and then, I mean, just tons of the denomina- denominations we have. The Pentecostal movement starts to develop, then... Um, Right. Any other questions before we move on? Okay, so Matthew and I had planned out for the Sunday school course a whole timeline that it was supposed to go fairly chronologically. Uh, my last lesson was a little bit out of order because Matthew was behind. Uh, this one's out of order because he was supposed to teach, I think, for three more Sundays before his babies were born. Um, and that didn't work out. So I'm not exactly sure how we'll proceed. Matthew is going to 
potentially pick up, or I will pick up next week, um, talking about the old school, new school controversy. This is in the uh, mid um, mid 1800s, and that is also going to flow right into the tensions between the North and the South, conflict over slavery, and eventually the division of the Northern and Southern churches uh, over slavery. Um, but we're doing a little interlude here. Um, interlude Scottish American denominations. So what I'm going to talk about is um, kind of stepping back again into the 1700s, even the late 1600s, and talk about um, something we wanted to make more of a focus in the course, but these are the minor streams in American Presbyterianism of the, the Scottish influence denominations, which are today we have pr- predominantly the RPCNA and the ARP. Um, there, there were more in the past that have have largely uh, joined other groups at this point. Um, so to set a little bit of context uh, for this, so w- let me just clarify again, we're going to do a lot of time overlap of a little bit of things we've already talked about, but a lot of time overlap of things we've already talked about. So if you, you know, think back to things that um, are happening, these things we'll talk about today are happening in parallel to the things that are happening in what is the, the mainline church. Um, when I was in college in Western Pennsylvania, I was relatively new to Presbyterianism. Um, my, my family started attending Presbyterian Church when I was 16. Uh, but one of the interesting things in Grove City, Pennsylvania, is there are two enormous Presbyterian churches 0.2 miles from each other, which at the time were both PCUSA churches. They're now in this split-off group called Echo. Um, but they're, for a very small town, they're enormous um, churches. And... Um, it seemed very odd to me that you'd have two PCUSA churches 0.2 miles from each other. Um, and I, I didn't know Presbyterian history uh, much at all then, but um, one of those churches until 1958 would have been what's called a United Presbyterian Church, which the United Presbyterian Church we're going to talk about in a little bit is kind of the ARP of the North. Um, and the other one would have been the mainline church or the PCUSA church. And so when those two denominations joined in 1958, they became these two huge churches of the same denomination. Um, but you really can't understand Western Pennsylvania, uh, with Pastor Hughes could, could tell you, without understanding the United Presbyterians and this uh, kind of substrain of smaller groups that um, move into Western Pennsylvania after the American Revolution. Um, so this topic is also of interest to me. Uh, I mentioned a couple weeks ago my... My ancestors who came down the Great Wagon Road and went to South Carolina, they were, my great-grandmother was from an ARP family in South Carolina. They had been ARP for um, something like 150 years in South Carolina until she married my great-grandfather who was a a Southern Presbyterian, PCUS, and they they became missionaries. And so my, that was kind of the end of the the ARPs then. Um, But it's been interesting to me over the last few years to, to try to learn more about that. Um, so for you, you don't care about my family necessarily, but you know, um, the, hopefully this lesson will give you a little more context as to why we have these uh, sister Presbyterian denominations. We're, we're members uh, together of an organization called NAPARC, which is a, um, not a, a church, but a, you know, a, a closely related uh, organization of closely related conservative Presbyterian churches, the PCA, the ARP, uh, the OPC, the RPCNA. Uh, the United Reformed Church, um, and several smaller denominations. Um, but these are two groups that are very close to us theologically in many ways, 
and even more so now probably than they would have been historically. Um, but we're separate denominations, and it, and it turns out we have totally different histories, um, which is, is largely why we're separate, separate denominations. I think it's also to, helpful to hear some of what we'll talk about uh, today as understanding, sometimes it can be discouraging to hear about um, there's conflict that is happening in you know, our, our denomination sometimes and other Reformed denominations or churches that are leaving and changing denominations or splitting off and starting other groups. Um, all these different things are happening. Um, and it turns out that's actually been happening as far back as you can possibly go, uh, which is going to, I think I'm going to illustrate that uh, today. And I mean, it, maybe that makes it more discouraging, but I, I think it, in some ways, hopefully it is encouraging that the Lord preserves his church even with these very um, tangled and complicated histories and histories that involve um, sinners uh, and, and splits over things that don't always make sense. Um, but finally on that point, um, it's also easy. Um, Enrique, I, could, could you help me hand out this handout? I only have 30 copies of this, so if people can try to share, I just didn't have time to make more. Um, on the back of this is one of the examples of the the Presbyterian family tree. This one's produced by the Peace USA Historical Society. There, so if you look online, there are a number of other illustrations of this. Um, Matthew showed a couple of them before, but looking at you know how the churches have divided over time, and it's true there has been a lot of division in Presbyterianism, as with most other denominations in America. Um, but if you look at least numerically. Division has not been the predominant theme, but unification has actually been a much larger theme. So there are still a number of different Presbyterian denominations today, including several that we're very close to theologically. Um, But numerically, at least, most of these groups that split have often united back in, and and predominantly those have united into what is now the PCUSA. Um, So the Cumberland Presbyterians united into the PCUSA, the United Presbyterians, uh, the Welsh Calvinistic Methodists, um, the, the PCUSA itself, which split at one time into four separate groups, has all come back together. Um, and so, uh, you, that, that, and my point there partially being that, you know, it's, it's easy to think about the splits and ignore the unity, but also um, there's, there's a lot of complexity in that unity because what is now the PCUSA is... Uh, a very liberal church that's increasingly a more liberal church. Uh, and I think a, a good argument can be made that uh, at least aspects of that liberalism come through uniting groups that shouldn't be united as the same denomination. So you force two groups together that believe different things. Um, ultimately, what you have to do is soften those views, which maybe hasn't been a good thing. And, but you, I'll let, leave that for you to decide. All right, so... Uh, we got about 30 minutes, and um, what I'm going to attempt to give is an overview of these denominations, uh, largely up till about 1900, um, and we'll see how far we get. I might, might not get all the way through it. Um, okay, so uh, the roots of the Scottish-American uh, churches... We've already talked about largely go back to two groups in Scotland, and we call them Scottish American churches. Not that they're directly tied to um, Scotland, but these groups 
what's now the RPCNA, what's now the ARP, in their earlier days hung on much tighter to their connections to their practices and their, their people who, were, who remained in Scotland or in Northern Ireland. Um, so one of those groups, the Reformed Presbyterians are also called the Covenanters, um, come from the Presbyterians who in the 1640s, well, all, all of Scotland in a sense in the 1640s signed what's called the Solemn League and Covenant, which was this um, covenant with uh, Scotland, England, and Ireland to reform the churches, a pledge to reform the churches. And these covenanters held on to this covenant even as others very quickly uh, started to ignore it. Um, the covenanters, I mentioned this before, they started to meet in private groups uh, called societies at risk of persecution and death. Um, as early as 1662, they began to migrate to the colonies, um, initially to eastern Pennsylvania. From there, some went down to South Carolina, New York, western Pennsylvania. Um, the first known covenant or congregation was established um, in uh, Pennsylvania, kind of outside um, Lancaster area in, in the 1740s. Um, and by 1774, so right on the brink of the American Revolution, there, there were four ministers who had come from Scotland and Ireland, and they constituted a Reformed Presbytery. Before that, I'm going to step back, and I only have a few slides today, but I wanted to go ahead and show those to set a little bit of context. Uh, and the context is that geography is really important here. Sorry, this is a little bit hard to see. It's, it's a little bit small. Uh, but the, this is just a picture from a book. Uh, those little stars up there at the top are... Um, are these RP and ARP congregations in New York and Vermont. They're kind of up, up along the Hudson River. Um, so that some of them went up that direction. Later, this, is, uh, this doesn't have the date, but as, as people start to move out to Ohio, um, they settle. Uh, you can see down there in the uh, south uh, west of Ohio, as well as along the eastern border, just over from western Pennsylvania. So the, those little dots and, and plus signs or these congregations. Western Pennsylvania is much more prominent. Um, you could especially see this is Western Pennsylvania. Um, Grove City, Pennsylvania, where I went to college, is right around here. But you just have Western Pennsylvania is just full of these churches that are what are now R- RPCNA, ARP churches, uh, as well as you know, some scattered back as they moved across from Philadelphia. And then this is South Carolina, uh, North Carolina a little bit, North Charlotte area. Um, as well as down into South Carolina. These are churches by, as of 1790, uh, and then even into Georgia. Okay, so, and then one final map. This uh, map is ARP congregations today in the Charlotte area. You may know in Wake County, we have two ARP congregations. If you look here, Mecklenburg County has, you know, what, 30 ARP congregations. And that whole area, the Charlotte area, is really where the, the ARPs started to congregate. Um, so that's to give a little bit of context for what we're going to talk about here. Um, I'm just going to put it back on that. Um, okay, so the, the Covenanters uh, in 1774 um, formed a, a Reformed Presbytery in North America. Um, because a new nation had been formed after that, 1776, and as the, the revolution ends, many of these covenanters started to f- 
feel like they were no longer bound to the Solemn League and Covenant as well as the National Covenant, which had predated it. So they're in a new nation, so their covenant to reform the churches of the nation um, maybe no longer applied. Um, so in 1782, 1782, right at the end of the American Revolution, um, the majority of the Reformed Presbyterians, which was only about 600 people, so a pretty small group, joined with their sister denomination, the Associate Presbytery, uh, which was a group they agreed with on most things other than covenanting. Um, and they have formed what is what's called the Associate Reformed Presbyterian uh, Synod, so, or maybe Presbytery initially. Associate from the Associate uh, group, who we'll talk about in a second, Reformed from the Reformed Presbyterian group, and they just combined the names. A, a remnant of these people uh, and congregations believe this union required too many concessions, and through the support of some ministers sent from Ireland and Scotland, they would form a new Reformed Presbytery in 1798, uh, which, so, uh, there's this thing that often happens when two denominations join, you end up with three denominations. The, the joint denominations and then the people who stay out of the, the two. So that, that happens here. So some of the Reformed stay out uh, and form this new Reformed Presbytery, which is then going to lead up to the modern RPCNA. Um, because of, so for that group, the, the group that stayed out, because the United States Constitution made no reference or claim of the lordship of Christ over the nation uh, of the United States, the, the covenanters believe they were required to dissent from uh, kind of political involvement with the United States because the, essentially they thought the United States was an illegitimate nation because it didn't acknowledge the lordship of Christ. So they wouldn't, for example, hold office and they wouldn't vote. Um, and the, the RPs, as they continued to what we have in the modern RPCNA, formally held this view until the 1960s where they wouldn't, they wouldn't vote, they wouldn't hold office, um, sometimes wouldn't serve in the military. Um, okay, so that's the RPs, the Covenanters. The, there's another group called the, the Associate Presbyterians or the Seceders. They start in Scotland as well, a little bit later than the Covenanters. In 1732, um, the General Assembly, I think I mentioned this, or Ma- Matthew may have mentioned this, um, they, they, the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland passed a new law basically prohibiting churches from selecting their ministers and giving that authority to um, the wealthy landowners and, and civil leaders instead of the, uh, the congregation. Uh, Ebenezer Erskine, uh, a name you've probably heard, was a minister in Scotland, uh, wished to have his dissenting vote recorded in the General Assembly. He, he, he opposed this decision and wanted to have his vote recorded, which is a common thing in our uh, church courts. Um, his request was refused because of a, a change to the rules several years before. And as a result, he, he preached a sermon against the ungodly, what he believed to be the ungodly decision of this uh, synod. Um, the Synod sends a, a committee to speak with uh, Erskine and uh, make him aware of his offenses and tell him he shouldn't have preached a sermon against the, the uh, mistakes of the Synod. And um, they voted to censure him, to basically discipline him for his, how he was acting. Um, Erskine appealed this censure to the General Assembly uh, and then... Uh, they refused at the meeting of the General Assembly to let him read a formal protest uh, that he had written. And he and three other ministers leave the, the General Assembly meeting. This is in 1732. And they form um, 
uh, they, they go on to form a new denomination called the, the Associate Synod. Uh, so that's in 1733. Uh, 1733, that happens. Nine years later, uh, there's the first Associate Synod church in the colonies uh, near Harris, Harrisburg and Hershey, Pennsylvania. Um, and by the time of the American Revolution, the Associate Synod uh, in the colonies has 13 ministers. Um, there's a, a complexity that gets thrown in there. Uh, so the, 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 synod, the Associate Synod is formed in 1933 in Scotland. In 1947, the Associate Synod divides. Uh, they have a conflict over something called the Burgess Oath. Um, so a Burgess was basically like a, a, a local leader of a borough in, in Scotland. Um, and there was an oath that was required to take office. And the Synod divided over whether or not it was valid for for Christians to take this oath. And so listen to this. This is part of the oath. And see if you know why they, some of them, the anti-Burgesses, they were called, didn't like this oath. Here I protest before God in your lordship that I profess and allow with my heart the true religion presently professed within this realm and authorized by the laws thereof. I shall abide... Um, I have a typo here. Something abide something and defend the same to my life's ends, renouncing the Roman religion called papistry. So that sounds like a very Christian thing, right? Here I am um, professing the, the true religion within this realm and um, saying I won't be Catholic and I'll defend against Catholicism. Why might, uh, why might some have objected to that? Any guesses? It doesn't mention Jesus, although that wasn't necessarily the issue. That's a good observation. So the concern was over this phrase, true religion. So the Associate Synod had left the Church of Scotland, which is the state church, or the established church, and they are now, to take office, supposed to swear that I'll uphold the the true religion of this nation, which is the, the established church is the... Church of Scotland, which they're objecting to this Church of Scotland. So the anti-Burgesses said, we can't call what's going on in Scotland true religion because the, the Church of Scotland is wrong, essentially. Um, sorry, the, the anti-Burger, they were called the, uh, it's called the Burger Oath over the office of Burgess. So Ralph and Ebenezer Erskine, who were the two of the, the founders of the ARP, they were in the Burger Party, which is the party willing to take the oath. Um, interesting story, Ebenezer's Ebenezer Erskine's son-in-law, James, was in the anti-Burger party, and he goes to the Synod meeting uh, where they are, it's all coming to a head, um, and um, at the meeting they excommunicated the, the Erskines and, and the other uh, Burger party members. Um, when James goes home, he's greeted by his wife, who's the daughter of the, the minister he had just, they had just excommunicated, and... Uh, According to the story, she says, she greets him and says, well, and this is a quote from a book, he was silent. She followed him into his study and repeated her query. Well, after a long pause, he replied, we, we have excommunicated them. And she replied to him, you have excommunicated my father and my uncle. You are my husband, but you shall, but never more, you sh- never more shall you my minister, sorry, shall you be minister of mine. Um, and for the, supposedly for the rest of her life, she attends a uh, uh, 
an anti-burger church and refuses to attend her, her husband's church. So, and the, the book goes on to say he helped her onto her horse every, every Sabbath day to, to get to church. So, um, this divide reminded, remained in Scotland for 70 years, um, but mostly mentioning this because this is a complicated thing in the colonies because you have these associate synod uh, people coming to the colonies. They're divided over this oath that only makes sense in Scotland, right? There's no, there's no burger oath that has to be taken uh, in the colonies. So they, they have this awkward division where they're fighting about something that is completely irrelevant uh, in, in the colonies. And as a result, they largely start to unite pretty quickly, um, which upsets some in Scotland. Um, so now we have in the colonies the Associate Synod and the, the Reformed uh, Synod. They're essentially identical, and um, they consider themselves more faithful, uh, more strict Presbyterians than what was emerging as the mainline church, or, the, or what's now the PCUSA. Um, they, were, they thought the, the mainline church was too friendly with Congregationalists, which, which proved to be true, as we, as we talked about. Um, uh, Matthew talked about last week. Um, they were practice what's called closed communion. So you could only take communion in the church if you were a member of the church. Uh, it's not, as we say here, if you're a member of, in good standing of a Bible-believing church or something similar. Um, they also, um, both groups were uh, very opposed to what's called occasional hearing. And it's a little bit unclear as to how people define occasional hearing, but in, in the strictest sense, occasional hearing is you shouldn't be going to another church of another denomination because that's an unfaithful church. Um, a looser form of it might just be you shouldn't be going to a, you know, a heterodox church. Like in this era, we started to have Trinitarian controversies. You shouldn't be going to a, a worshiping in a, in a Unitarian church, which seems pretty obvious. Um, but they were, they were very strict about where, where people were allowed to worship. Um, they were also... Uh, much more, both groups were much more um, staunch on, on just singing uh, psalms from the 1650 Psalter, um, where some of the mainline churches started to sing Isaac Watts's renditions of the psalms. Okay, so in 1782, these associates ended, the Covenanters formed the ARP, the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, um, from about 1,500 seceders or associates ended and 600 Covenanters. <coughs> Um, and as we already mentioned, some of the associate synod then is also going to stay out and continue um, as a separate or group. So union of two groups ends up with three groups. Um, what I gave you on the front page of your handout was just a cheat sheet so you can try to keep some of this stuff straight that I, I prepared for you this morning. Um, so the initial ARP is divided into three presbyteries, one for central and western Pennsylvania, one for kind of the, more the Philadelphia area and the lands to the south, which goes down to South Carolina, and one for New York, and it even extends up into Canada. Uh, by 1802, the ARP had grown to about 5,000 members and was divided into four regional senates. So you have the Senate of New York, Senate of Pennsylvania, Senate of the West, or the Ciota, uh, uh Senate, which ends up being like Ohio and Kentucky, and then you have the Senate, ARP Senate of the South. Um, the churches in the South, so that's 1802, you have four synods. The churches in the South resented the long distance they would have to travel, probably by horseback to get to synod meetings. Uh, that was also a problem in Ohio and Kentucky, you know, maybe going to synod meeting in Philadelphia or something, or New York City. Um, those groups, the further out groups, also started to grow concerned about the laxity of the, the 
uh, in the Presbytery of New York. In, in a, a prominent case, there was a case of someone called John Mason. Uh, John Mason was an early, very prominent ARP minister um, in New York City. There were two ARP churches in New York City at the time. Eight, in 1805, he founded uh, the first ARP seminary, uh, which is in New York City. Um, at least according to, to one account, he resigned from the church that he was at when they refused to provide him an assistant or expand the church building according to his plans. Um, he, he formed a, a third ARP congregation in New York City, which didn't have a building to meet in, so they met in a PCUSA church building in the afternoon. Um, some of the people from the PCUSA church started to stay after and attend the services at John Mason's ARP congregation, and John Mason started to serve communion to those uh, people, but the ARP believed in closed communion, so you had to be a member of their, at least their denomination, if not their congregation, uh, to, to partake in communion. So he was violating the, the principle of closed communion. He also started to preach occasionally in this PCUSA church, um, and he uh, would lead the church in singing Isaac Watts' hymns, or his, at least his psalm renditions. Um, so the, the Senate of the West writes a, a letter of concern about Mason. The Senate of the South kind of agrees with this letter. And the, the, the Senate investigates him, and then uh, he does something which I've never seen happen or heard of happening. He gives a three-hour speech at the Senate meeting in his defense, um, which is, is <laughs> quite an accomplishment. Um, and then ultimately the Senate decided not to censure him uh, so he, he wasn't disciplined in any way. And he actually later ends up leaving. He joins the PCUSA and ends up being a college president in Pennsylvania. Um, so that's in the 1805, kind of going forward. In 1820, the Presbytery of the West withdraws from the denomination over this. 1822, the Presbytery of the South, or sorry, the Senate of the South does the same thing. They, they split off from the, the ARP body. So these four synods are now kind of two synods, but they all sort of still consider themselves the three groups consider themselves the ARP. Um, but after that, the Senate of Philadelphia, or the Senate of um, Pennsylvania joins the PCUSA, so then that leaves the Senate of New York as kind of like the, the remaining uh, Senate. And then, so that's 18, 1820s. 1855, the Senate of the West, so Pennsylvania, Kentucky, joins back to the Senate of New York. So then you have this now you have this new ARP in the north, and you have this ARP in the south, the remaining Senate of the South. And then uh, in, that's 1855. 1858, this newly formed ARP in the north, which is Senate of New York, Senate of the West, joined with the associate Senate that had not joined the ARP in 1792. So they had continued on as their own church, uh, the associate Senate, and they form was called the United Presbyterian Church, which is a very significant Presbyterian church in the, in the history of the United States. It existed from 1858 when these groups joined until um, 1958 when it joins the PCUSA. But as we saw those, you know, those churches in... Um, well, this church I talked about in, in Pennsylvania, uh, in, you know, next to the PCUSA church, the United Presbyterian Church. Uh, very prominent, especially in Pennsylvania. Um, some names you might know who were United Presbyterians much later on. John Gerstner, the mentor of R.C. Sproul. I think R.C. Sproul maybe started in the, uh, the United Presbyterian Church, but he wasn't ordained until it joined the PCUSA. Uh, Jay Adams, famous for his b- biblical counseling work. 
And G.I. Williamson, who many of you would know from his, his study guide to the Confession and Catechisms. Okay, so that leaves us in the um, north by 1758 with the United Presbyterian Church. There's still an ongoing Reformed Presbyterian Church who will actually two Reformed Presbyterian churches at this time. We'll talk about that. And then in the South, we have the ARP, Synod of the South. Uh, and it continues on as the ARP. It eventually takes the name, drops Synod of the South, and becomes the ARP. So what we have today, all those churches we saw here in the South, these are the legacy of the ARP, Synod of the South. And that's the modern Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. It's kind of one of the synods of the original church. It's the Synod of the South. And they've spread now across the United States and into Canada um, but certainly predominantly in the South. It's about the size of the OPC. It's not a very, very big denomination. Okay. Um, so uh, just quickly mention, if you're not confused yet, that so uh, 1858, the ARPs in the North and the Associate Senate join. What happens when they join? Well, some of the Associate Senate still continues on as its own denomination, um, so the, there is an associate synod that remains until the 1960s when it, it dwindles down to three church, churches and it actually joins into the, the RBCNA. Okay, so as we're following these streams, that basically leads us now uh, with 10 minutes to talk about um, the history or what, how the, the, the Reformed Presbyterians develop after the ARP was formed. So we're backtracking now, uh, 17... 82, the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church has formed some, a, a very small number, uh, just, I mean, in the hundreds of people stay out of that merger and want to continue on as a Reformed Presbytery or what we now call the Reformed Presbyterian Church. Um, the, uh, I think the main emphasis behind this was they were still hung up on the Solemn League and Covenant and this understanding of political dissent and how the, the church should relate to um, the government. So the, the Reformed Presbyterians felt like there were too many concessions being made in, in starting the Associate Presbyterian Church um, because of this issue with the United States not recognizing Christ as the, uh, the king of the nation or the lord of the nation. Um, I've got to find my place in my notes just a second. Okay, so uh, 1798, um, there are about 1,000 people associated with this Reformed Presbyterian group. They had gotten a couple ministers. I think one had come from Ireland, one had come from Scotland, uh, and that was enough for them to establish a new Reformed Presbytery. So 1798, the new Reformed Presbytery is established. In 1809, they'd grown long enough to establish a synod. So a synod is just multiple presbyteries um, bound together. Um, the RPs, the Reformed Presbyterians in this era were, uh, they were a unique crowd. Their, um, their dissenting views were held very strongly and shaped a lot of things. They were also strongly, strongly premillennial. Uh, one of their prominent early ministers um, believed that the, the reign of the Antichrist had um, started um, in the 1600s when he believed that the papacy was established. And he, he believed that the, the reign of the Antichrist would end 1260 years after that, which would be 1866. And that would usher in the millennial reign of Christ. Um, 
Yeah, if you know what was going on in the United States, 1866, it was not the millennial reign of Christ in, in that, in that post-millennial sense. Um, <coughs> this is not a quote from, from him, but from a, a book about him. All the nations would, at 1866, would consistently understand, profess, and support the true religion in all its applications. This was early 1900s. He's saying that in 50 years, all nations will support the true religion, which is very optimistic. Um, McLeod said, it is with high ecstasy this very period of the world will, a few years hence, be celebrated. So that, that was an influential view, and, and maybe could be argued the view of the, the Reformed Presbyterians in this era. Aggressively post-millennial, um, very optimistic about, about the future. Uh, they also um, were really one of the, the few, if not the predominant, um, Bible-believing denomination that was aggressively opposed to slavery. In the early 1800s, they uh, say slave owners are not able to be members of the Reformed Presbyterian churches. Um, and um, if you read about you know, the relationship between religion and abolitionism, um, there's a lot of really bad theologically liberal arguments being made against slavery. Uh, and the RPs of this area are, are an example of theologically orthodox group that argues against uh, chattel slavery. Um, particularly, McLeod, who's the same kind of post-millennialist figure, publishes in, in 1802, Negro, Negro Slavery Unjustifiable, uh, where he argues that Exodus 21.16 prohibits man-stealing and that chattel slavery is man-stealing. Um, so why do we have so few RPCNA churches in the South? Well, that was a very unpopular view in the South, uh, and the RPs either maybe join another denomination to become slave, to continue as slave owners, or a lot of them migrated up to Ohio and Indiana, where you had a predominant or a large uh, RPCNA influence, um, relatively speaking, even still today. Um, and you can go find that, uh, that, ar- that, um, that pamphlet against slavery online. If you want it, I can send it to you. Um, but it, it, it's... It's, uh, it's very useful to consider, even Matthew's, hopefully, or I'm going to talk about uh, a lot of the racism that's entrenched in some of the Southern Presbyterians, and uh, some of it's, it's actually appalling to read, uh, but the, the RPs were a very encouraging light in that era. Um, in, in 1833, they faced their own uh, controversy, so this is kind of the, the same time the, nor- the mainline church is dividing over um, the Second Great Awakening and... Uh, the old school, new school controversy conflict over uh, working with um, uh, independent churches, congregational churches. The RPs have an entirely separate division, which is known as the old light and new light controversy. This is rooted in the same principle of political consent from the Constitution. Uh, conflict starts to occur with the War of 1812. Um, some of the RPs had never taken a naturalization oath and become... Um, American citizens, basically, because they, they objected to taking this oath because of their principle of dissent. So they were technically uh, British citizens, and they weren't allowed to serve in the military in the War of 1812. Also, um, non-Americans were being told to essentially move away from the, the coast uh, at that era. Some of the RPs take kind of this, uh, they make this oath that they think is uh, sufficient in making them citizens without... Um, affirming the, what they believe to be the ungodly constitution. 
Uh, and that, that starts to create tensions in the church. Uh, there's an issue over someone who wants to serve on a jury. And there, there's this, a lot of con- discussion and conflict over, well, do our local, our local um, governments under the Constitution, when that's like for the federal government, so maybe our local governments can be righteous even when our federal government is unrighteous. Um, so that leads to this, this tension, uh, and they divide into the old lights and new lights. Um, let me think about how to get through the 10 minutes of material in five minutes. Um, so in the Senate of 1833, uh, the conflict arises over the former moderator starts to speak in the Senate. So some of the, I think the old lights kind of shout him down. They don't think he's legitimate as the moderator. Somebody talks about calling the police and the old light men walk out of the Senate and form their own separate Senate. Um, the new lights, um, wouldn't join the mainline church, the PCUSA, because of their unwillingness to adopt the American modifications of the Westminster Standards about the relationship between the civil magistrate and the church. Um, they talk a lot. All these churches really had a lot of discussion about different union. They talked about joining the ARPs and the associate reformed, uh, but they didn't like that those groups didn't um, oppose slavery, at least consistently. Um, they... Uh, and th- through these discussions, some of them split off and joined the United Presbyterians later on after the Civil War. Um, the, the New Light group, which was called the Reformed Presbyterian Church General Synod, really declined through the 1800s into the 1900s, declined in size. Uh, from 1868 to 1898, 30 years, they'd lost half their, their size. Um, in 1902, they only had 36 congregations. In 1905, they considered union with the PCUSA again. 1906, they consider union with the United Presbyterians. None of this works out for, for a variety of reasons. Um, as the 19th or the 20th century progresses, they start to lose a lot of their identity. They start to sing hymns. Um, they start to use instruments in worship. Uh, they loosen their com- commitment to Sabbath keeping, to close communion, and to church discipline. In 1953, they had dwindled to about 1,300 members. And in 1965, they joined the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, which is not the EPC we have today. That was a split off of the Bible Presbyterian Church, which splits off of the OPC, which we'll talk about more later. Um, and, but they form what's called the RPCES, which is uh, most notable that in 1982, they joined into the PCA uh, at a time when the OPC also considers joining with the, the PCA. Um, so mostly interesting then, like, what we have in the, the modern PCA includes this remnant of these Reformed Presbyterian Covenanter group that goes all the way back to the, the 1600s in Scotland. Okay. Um, I'm going to go for two more minutes, then I'll be done. Um, so that leaves us with the old lights. The old lights were the ones who were stricter about uh, their political descent. Um, they uh, are aggressively opposed to slavery they also later are aggressively um, arguing for adding an amendment to the Constitution to recognize the kingship of Christ. Some of them meet with Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War to ask Abraham Lincoln to add an amendment to the Constitution uh, and also to, to speak to him about uh, the evils of slavery. Um, they later form a group called the National Reform Association, which is predominantly but not entirely these RP um, men and its whole purpose initially is to add this constitutional amendment. It later expands to a lot of social reform, like fighting prostitution, gambling, pornography, Sabbath breaking, etc. 
In the late 1800s, they split, and this could be a whole Sunday school in itself, but over a tension that is underlying so much of this of their identity of, you know, what does it mean for us to be Presbyterians, Presbyterians, Reformed Presbyterians, and how strict should we be and how much should we be willing to flex on things we believe to be more united with other groups. So um, a bunch of the young ministers split off and joined the United Presbyterians. Um, that's also the time when they ordained their first female deacon, which was done without uh, any authority to do that. And so basically the RPCNA uh, enabled female deacons by this church ordaining a female deacon and then the synod in, uh, I think, 1888 or something, just basically declines to discipline the church for doing that. And that opened the door for them to have female deacons, which they, they still can have today. Um, all right, so the, what remains of that after this kind of last split in the 1800s is now what we have today as the, the modern RPCNA. And there's a very interesting develop, the ha- development that happens through the 20th century as they lose kind of this covenanting identity, the political dissent. Um, they, they back away from a lot of the restrictions they had. For a while, they didn't allow church officers to drink or smoke. Um, they didn't allow church members to vote. And they've really backed away from all that to where, this is debatable, but the predominant difference in the RPCNA today is that they're the one group that sticks to uh, singing psalms exclusively, uh, which was not really their identity earlier on. Even in the early 1900s, you would have had the, the old lights, the new lights, the Associate Senate, the United uh, Presbyterians, and the ARP in the South. Five denominations all would have been exclusive psalmist denominations as, as late as 1900. Um, and that wasn't really the RP's thing, but now that's kind of their, their thing today. 